If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. The Prime Minister's Cabinet retreat winds up today in Hamilton. Good luck, safe travels. And if you're like real Canadians, here's hoping your luggage gets to wherever you're going. Here's Scott Thompson. Real Canadians. That's what we are right here in the Hammer. Real Canadians. Ontario, Canada, east to west. We're real Canadians. We're uh, kind of giddy when it starts to snow like it does. All right, enough of that. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Thanks for joining us. I know what you're saying. You're picking that song to take a shot at the Prime Minister. Although it is very apropos, isn't it? No, that's not the case at all. What kind of person you think I am? Uh, Elvis was number six. 17 on uh, Rolling Stone's top 20 greatest singers of all time. Still looking for the Celine Dion, but Elvis coming in at number 17. That's where we are. And we're going to milk this all the way through uh, till the end of the month anyway. So uh, there you have it. Although when selecting the song, I must admit I did chuckle quite a bit because it did seem to fit. <clears throat> I'll leave it at that. All right. Uh, Bank of Canada has announced, uh, whoop, here we go again. Uh, another two point, uh, sorry, 0.25%, a quarter point, uh, taking the back, uh, Bank of Canada rate up to four and a half percent. They say, all right, we're going to pause now if everything's stable, uh, you know, uh, sort of, uh, levels out and, and I guess we stop screaming. I don't know. Uh, so we'll see, but it looks like there is going to be a pause after that. So that is good news. Uh, the other really phenomenal news and man, I got to give you the backstory on this because this crap is 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 freaking hilarious. Uh, the prime minister has finally called a meeting with the prime ministers. I'm calling a meeting with the prime ministers. No, no, no. The, or, or with the premiers. No, no, no. The premiers have been calling you to a meeting for the last two and a half years on health care. Now he says he's going to have a meeting with the premiers, uh, which I think is is hilarious, because if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, uh, first wave, it was NDP premier, BC premier Horgan, who was assembling uh, the premiers back in the state, the first stage of all of this. And the, pre- the prime minister didn't want anything to meet. It didn't want to meet with them, didn't want anything to do with it. Um, you know, we need to change the template. We need to change. No, no, no. It's all up to you. It's your responsibility. Um, you know, and, and, we're, and so eventually, obviously, the whole system falls apart. And this is not going away for the prime minister. So he has to talk about it. Even though dental care and pharma care and daycare, they're all provincial matters. He's finally got to face this. And, <laughs> So, uh, so he, he says, okay, we, we, I'm not giving you money. They gotta be conditions. Gonna be conditions. That's it. Yeah, there's conditions and reform. You have to reform. You have to change the template. You have to change the way you do things. Doug Farr goes, okay, no problem. Yay. Then within a matter of days, uh, announces his plan to get moving. And with that, provinces from British Columbia to Nova Scotia are following suit. And then, as you will see on uh, this report from Global News, uh, which came out a little earlier on, uh, I'm just seeing if I can find it here. And and so basically, on the healthcare meetings, this is from Global News Copy, a spokesperson, spokesperson for British Columbia Premier David Eby, tells the Canadian press the premiers are going to be in Ottawa February 12th and 13th for a meeting, and Trudeau is welcome to join them. So the point that I'm making here is it has now become a scenario where the prime minister is chasing the provinces on health care reform. It's the prime minister who is dragging his feet here. Uh, first, it's conditions. Uh, you know, then we have to have uh, reforms. You've got to change the way you do things. Just keep punting it down the field. And eventually they go, OK, because the problem is so severe, they got to do something. So we're seeing provinces change from east to west, west to east. And they're asking for a meeting February 12th and 13th. No, no, no. Oh, we're going to call a meeting on February 7th. We're now going to call a meeting on February 7th, and we're going to get together. It's a working meeting. We're not going to give you any more money. We're not going to tell you about that, but it's a working meeting. Meanwhile, the provinces are already agreeing to conditions 
and announcing reforms. The prime minister is now chasing the provinces on this. And he's trying to play catch up by getting squeezed into a meeting because uh, they were coming anyway, February 12th and 13th. It's like the convoy. They're coming. So, okay, oh, 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 we'll hit this off at the pass. We're going to have a meeting February 7th. No money, but we're going to talk about it. So, once again, we have an about face, a flip flop. And Justin Trudeau calls a meeting that the, the premiers have been calling for two and a half years, at least. And again, have agreed to conditions, have, have agreed to reforms, are already moving forward. Well, the prime minister plays catch up. Honestly, uh, it's enough talk. I remember when I started in talk radio, somebody, I interviewed somebody and they said, you know, uh, you fake it till you make it. People are tired of that. People have lived through a, a, a three year, two and a half, the three year uh, global pandemic. They are tired with people who talk and do not deliver results. People don't give a rat's ass where their health care comes from. They just don't want to wait a year to get it. And finally, finally, the politicians of all stripes, of all uh, levels, are finally understanding this. You know, the socks and the selfies and the talk only go so far. Then you've actually got to do something. You've got to produce results. You can't blame world events on everything. Everything on world events. It's nuts. It's like being a Walmart greeter. It's great to welcome people into the store, tell them what they need, where they should go. But in this case, you got to know how the store runs, how it operates, how to manage the store. And that's where we seem to be falling short. More on this all coming up. All right. Uh, I guess we knew this was coming. Uh, another uh, 0.25% quarter point raise in the Bank of Canada interest rate, 4.5% now. I think that's like eight in a row. Let's bring in Eric Camp, Professor Economics, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Any surprises here for you? What is your thoughts on all of this? It's not really a surprise to me, Scott, and thanks. Hope you're well as well. But I did take a chance today to download the data in terms of the price level and the inflation rate over the last little while. And it actually is starting to work. The Bank of Canada, what they are doing, attacking it by raising the interest rate, raising the borrowing rate, hoping that that takes a bite out of consumption. It's starting to work. If you look at the raw data, you see the numbers starting to creep down. But I don't want all the listeners to jump up and down and say this is over because the biggest thing to drop, of course, has been fuel prices and the Bank of Canada has nothing to do with fuel prices. But if you look at the aggregate price level, it is starting to drop. So that's a long winded way of answering by saying, no, this is not a surprise. Um, the Bank of Canada says this should be it for a while. Uh, I think they have a bit of a credibility issue that doesn't move me one way or the other. But um, if it does mean anything to people and they're asking, why are we doing this? The answer is, well, slowly but surely, it's actually working. All right. So uh, government will say not much we can do here. Uh, we're just along for the ride in all of this. Uh, that being said, is it about being better prepared for something like this? Well, yeah, but that's a whole other story. The government says we're along for the ride. The government has no idea what they're talking about. We are here today because the government ran through the pandemic like my nine-year-old runs through a bag of cheesies. They gave <laughs> away money like it was free and it had no ramifications. Couple that with the supply chain and that's why we're here. So it really falls short to me when the government comes out and says, well, we can't do anything about this. Well, no, you're a day late and a dollar short. The Bank of Canada is doing all they can. I mean, as critical and as complicated as an economy is, what are you going to do? They have monetary policy at their disposal. All they can do if they want to bring down the price level is make things more expensive. And that's what they're doing. And we'd really be in trouble if the data showed we were losing that battle. But we're actually winning that battle. But that doesn't mean we're not in for, for some very short term to medium term pain. 
So will there be help for Canadians who are struggling for this? Christia Freeland alluded, you know, there's only so much there, uh, and that's not necessarily the answer. I had an economist on the other day and, and asked if, you know, should we, we've got obviously hikes and carbon tax coming up in the spring and such, should those be eased? And he said that wouldn't help the economy. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think it's about the economy. It's about helping the average Canadian. Uh, or is that just putting too much money back into this? Okay, I'm not running for office, but I have to tell you, I don't know who you had on, uh, but that's just wrong. I don't know what they're talking about. Wouldn't help the economy. What we have to do right now in any times of inflationary spirals is help people with their disposable income. And so if the government would be reactionary and would do something like take off the carbon tax, we're not talking about doing things that are going to allow people to go from not taking that European vacation to that European vacation, Scott. We're talking about people that need to feed their children and house their families. Okay. We're not talking about should I or shouldn't I buy a yacht. And so I'd like to see uh, incomes go up a little bit and it would take really nothing more than stopping this carbon tax for a while until we get back onto a positive growth path. So uh, I hate to fight with whoever that was, but I think that that's garbage. You know, as an economist, I really believe in the rights and privileges of people to feed their kids. And right now, I think that what the government and the bank have combined to do is erode that. And so I'm for anything that makes that job easier for mom and dad. Uh, we've talked for 20 years about uh, low interest rates uh, way back when it was, you know, how long will this last? And then it became the norm. Uh, are low interest rates gone? They history? Uh, their history for a, a good long while. I mean, I think a really good question is where would we be had the pandemic not hit? And it's a counterfactual. I haven't I haven't done it. I haven't run the econometric data to see where we would be. But I don't think we would have varied much from that path. It wasn't going to stay 0.25 forever. But the reality is when dealing in quote unquote normal situations, the bank did its job and did it well. So it always takes some what we call exogenous shock to set the system off. And the pandemic provided the exogenous shock that a very poor federal government speaking economically uh, it didn't need anything more than that to screw up the system. And in that, they did it perfectly. Uh, let's talk about health care and the uh, economics of that. Uh, the, the premiers obviously have been trying to meet with uh, the prime minister for since this pandemic started. Um, now they're moving on reforms themselves and have agreed to conditions. Uh, the the, the uh, prime minister has now agreed to meet with them. What about the costs involved in that in, in increasing transfer payments, whatever needs to be done uh, to fix this? Because there's a lot of people screaming. And I was watching Jugmeet Singh of the NDP saying we just need to keep shoveling more money into this system? Uh, I would say we need to get rid of Jugmeet Singh, but that's a parenthetic political comment. He has <laughs> absolutely no idea about how to run a functioning capitalist economy, and he proves it every single time he opens his mouth or puts out a, a tweet or a Twitter or whatever the hell you call it. The, the healthcare system, which is arguably the most important system in a country, is crumbling because of the weight upon itself. And it's not a simple problem, but it's it's a simple solution to start looking at alternatives because when what you're doing is failing, you come up with new ideas. And let me tell you, if you look at other countries around the world, which I have, bringing in some private options for healthcare is just that. It's an option. It doesn't take away the social safety net from anybody who needs healthcare. It will be there. But there is a certain sector of the population that can bring out their credit card bring out their wallet and get healthcare quicker and take the burden off of the ERs. And so what would be so wrong if people that are ready, willing and able to pay for some services like MRIs and CAT scans would take that out of a hospital and allow people that don't have the funds to get those things quicker on OHIP? I don't see the negative unless you're a Jugmeet Singh and you want to convince the people that the house is falling. He's wrong. It's not falling. It just needs to be rethought. Eric Cam with us, Professor of Economics, Toronto Metropolitan University. Eric, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Stay healthy and stay safe today, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, we're getting a lot of snow when people are sending you pictures of their snow. 
<laughs> if people are sending you pictures of their car in the driveway covered with snow or the front step or the back step or whatever, you know that we must be uh, in, in some sort of weather event. Good afternoon. It is 3.37. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Will Weber is on the board. Always looking for your last word at 905-645-3221. You can talk. You can text. You can send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Uh, Erskine booking the guests and Diane and Dave in the newsroom watching the world spin. And, boy, it's uh, the wind's whipping things around out there pretty good right now. In case you didn't uh, notice, it's snowing. Uh, let's bring in Ross Hall, Global News Meteorologist. He is with us now, and one of those uh, guys, when it's a day like today, he's very busy. Ross, how are you doing? Hope all is well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing great. I didn't send you my snow pictures. Oh, well, I'll have to send them later. <laughs> Are you getting those? Do people send you? They must send you snow pictures all the time. Stuff oh, yes. Like that. Uh, we do uh, Wildlife Wednesdays on the show at, on 11 o'clock, so we get to see pets in snow, which is uh, <laughs> which is a cute thing as well. <laughs> all right. You're going to get a lot of that coming up. That's for sure. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, give us the details, uh, what, can, what we can experience. Obviously, uh, looking outside where uh, it seems to be in full swing right now, what can we expect? Yeah, so I think we're right now really in in the meat of this storm. We're seeing the heaviest snow we're likely going to see over the next hour or two. Uh, It's been a little tricky because temperatures have been around the freezing mark. So uh, that's brought snowfall rates down a little bit. I'm just checking at the airport here in Hamilton, Hamilton Airport, receiving already six centimeters. Um, I know that the warning, snowfall warning mentions 15 to 20. I think in total it's going to be closer to 10 to 15. Uh, We didn't see lake enhanced bands that we were expecting. And again, over the next few hours, as temperatures rise closer to the freezing mark, uh, we could change over uh, to a bit of a rain-snow mix, especially areas that are lower terrain. Uh, the mountain could stick with snow a little longer. So uh, it's still an impact storm. It's still affecting areas uh, for the evening commute, uh, but we're just not expecting the 15 to 20 centimeter range around many parts of the GTHA. Uh, but uh, this is wet snow. It's not easy to get around in. So if you don't have to travel over the next few hours, uh, don't do so because it's pretty, uh, it's pretty messy out there. You're talking about the temperatures hovering around uh, zero and such, and obviously if it does get above there, then it slowly uh, turns to to rain and mess and freezing, whatever. Uh, What about the temperatures moving forward? Is this going to stay? Yeah, that's a good question because temperatures, as I mentioned, will rise. But then by the morning commute, by the time most of us wake up 6, 7, 8 a.m. tomorrow, temperatures will once again be back below freezing. So that's why if you do have any snow, don't wait and say, okay, well, I'll let the rest of the snow fall and wake up tomorrow morning and and shovel it then because there's going to be an icy layer underneath that wet snow that you may not be able to get rid of. So I'd suggest, uh, you know, before you head to sleep tonight or over the next few hours, make sure you shovel whatever snow has fallen and uh, apply some whatever treatments you do onto the uh, pavement because it's going to get slippery as temperatures drop below freezing through the day tomorrow. And we're really going to see this snow stick as we haven't seen very much uh, this season because temperatures are going to remain below freezing uh, throughout the next few days into early next week. And we actually could even see more snow uh, with the system on Sunday, which could bring another 10 plus possibly uh, centimeters of snow by then. Wow. Okay. So interesting uh, point here, Ross, because you, you you alluded to it's been sl- sort of a slow start. I mean, we got nailed in winter time, and certainly ski areas and cottage country uh, around Christmas time had tons of snow. But then by New Year's, uh, the temperature uh, went up, and and obviously a lot of that turned to rain. A lot of it melted, and and the winter is sort of been slow to start as a result of that. Uh, are are we in it now? Is is this it? Are we going to get? Are we into the January, February, March? where it's winter we got snow well <laughs> yes and no i think i think we're in a pretty active pattern for the next week or so uh mm-hmm. but Models are signaling yet another warm-up as we move uh, through February, not the beginning of the month, but closer towards the second week and towards uh, the midpoint of the month. So if you're a snow lover and uh, you enjoy this type of weather, I think uh, we're in for some some decent amounts of snow, and it's going to stick around at least for the next uh, week or two, I think. Uh, But not to say it's going to stick around for the rest of the month of Mm. uh, February. It's going to be one of those winters, you know. And you're right. uh, You know, we were talking today with the newsroom about – 
how significant this system is. Usually in late January, talking about you know 10, 15 centimeters of snow, uh, even 15 to 20 is not a huge deal, but it's no. just that uh, the area hasn't seen this amount of snow so far this season. Now, areas to the east uh, around Niagara, for instance, of course, that big blizzard around Christmas, there were very heavy amounts of snow, but mm. uh, around much of the GTHA, it, it hasn't been the case. So this is some of the most snow we have seen uh, really so far this winter. So how big is this storm? Where does it stretch from where to where? Is it, is it a big system that covers a lot of area? Yeah, that's a great question as well. It's a, a pretty expansive system, so it's it's dealing with all the lower Great Lakes. But then if you do have travel plans, if you happen to be uh, – a flight to the Maritimes or hoping to head out there. Uh, this system is going to be a mess uh, through that part of the country into Atlantic Canada, Montreal as well. Uh, this will likely be the most snow that city's seen. Uh, it's going to be more of a rain wind event for parts of Nova Scotia, but parts of New Brunswick are going to see some heavy snow. So it's really impacting a wide swath of uh, well eastern sections of the country and within Ontario, uh, that 401 corridor. So just looking at the radar right now, uh, there's heavy snow really uh, Windsor, London, uh, through to the GTHA, around the Hamilton area, a bit of mixing around Niagara, but uh, north and east of our area too, around north and east of Hamilton, there's also some heavy snow. So uh, it's a widespread reaching event, but things will start to ease by uh, the morning hours on Thursday. Uh, Well, obviously, as the winter progresses, the ground gets harder, frost, what have you, and stuff like this stays. Do we really have uh, that much frost in the greater Toronto Hamilton area for the ground? Is the ground solid? I mean, I remember yanking out my my Christmas lights from the ground. It's like they came out pretty easy this year. Yeah, well, we haven't seen prolonged periods of, of cold weather. Now, it doesn't take long for that to happen. And uh, indications are that we're going to be into a colder stretch for the, for the next week or so. And uh, those overnight temperatures, especially, we haven't really dropped very much below minus two, minus three over the last couple of weeks. We're going to get to overnight lows closer to minus 10. So that will help with some of the uh, the ground frost. But yeah, right now, that's why one of the reasons why it took some time for this snow to get going. It's just because that ground has been so warm. But uh, if you're seeing heavy snowfall rates like we're seeing with this system, uh, eventually that snow is going to start to accumulate and the salt is not going to do the job. We're going to need to have snow plows clearing things out. So um, I think we'll start to see more of a typical wintry pattern well into early February, uh, but can't guarantee that's going to last though as we are looking at some warmer weather by uh, mid-February it looks like. But you know, March can also be a cold month. So it doesn't mean that if we see a warm up in February, we won't see a return to cold conditions in March or April. Uh, what has been the pattern of late uh, has been you know, springs that are late to come. So that uh, that could certainly be the, the situation once again, where we get more shots of cold air into March or April. I, I hate to say that for people that are <laughs> looking forward to the winter ending soon, but uh, we'll have to see how things are. These uh, climate predictions of past really three or four or five days can be very difficult. All right, Ross, really quickly, uh, what do we? What can we expect in the next 12 uh, hours, 24 hours or so in the Hamilton well, I expect area. another five or possibly 10 centimeters, especially around the mountain over the next uh, three or four hours. And then the snow, the heavy snow will ease, could be a bit of a mix overnight. And then just some flurries heading into tomorrow morning. But uh, yes, those temperatures will be dropping. So make sure you uh, take care out there because it will be quite slippery. And yes, the snow is sticking around at least into the weekend into early next week, uh, which is uh, good news for people that want to get out there and enjoy it. All right, Ross Hall with us, Global News Meteorologist on the snow that is around us. Thank you, Ross. Be safe. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we uh, obviously know where inflation is. And uh, today, the Bank of Canada rate raised uh, uh, the interest rate again a quarter of a point, now 4.5%. Uh, eight times in a row that this has gone up. So, obviously, Canadians uh, are going to feel the pinch. Um, we do hear it's working. Um, at bringing down inflation, I guess, as far as making it easier for you. I'm not sure about that. Um, we obviously, obviously have talked a lot about polling over the course of the pandemic and, and just in general over the years. But, you know, I, I can't remember ever seeing a poll or hearing a result where one of the options was completely out of money. As 22%, uh, 22% of Canadians are after a recent Ipsos Public Affairs poll. To talk more about all of this, Sean Simpson is with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs and here now. Sean, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. 
So, you know, this really stands out in, in you know, it is 22%, so 2 in 10, that's that's still a significant amount, uh, even though there would be, obviously, uh, you know, 70s, 80% that aren't. But to hear the term completely out of money, I mean, over the years, we've heard how, you, you know, how you doing? Well, good, bad, this, the other. But to be completely tapped out seems we're in a different stratosphere now. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and in fact, just in the break, we heard an advertisement from the local food bank that says that mm. visits are up, you know. So uh, people are, are feeling the pinch. And with the Bank of Canada's announcement today that interest rates are going up yet again, the vice is getting tighter. And, uh, you know, 22 percent, obviously it's a minority, but that represents millions of Canadians yeah. who say that they're out of money, there's no way they can pay more for household necessities. So, yes, high interest rates are the antidote to inflation, but if prices continue to go up from where they are now, uh, Canadians are going to struggle to pay for it, and you know many will, will uh, have to go to the food bank, substitute you know, fresh for frozen or canned, or worst of all, go without. Um, you know, again, we've heard of recessions, depressions, hard times, uh, tough times over years and such. And in many ways, it's uh, cyclical, but obviously very much different now. Is that solely due to the pandemic? Because there's been conflict, what have you, in, you know, in the world in the, in the past. But boy, it's been a long time since we've had something as earth shaking as what's happened in the last three years. Well, I think the, the reality is that, uh, you know, we've had a pretty good economy for the last 30 or 40 years, uh, really, the last time we had, uh, you know, inflation this high was in the 80s. So if yeah. you are, you know, the, the latter half of Gen X, a millennial or a Gen Z, you haven't had to adult, <laughs> to use a verb, use it as a verb in this yeah. environment ever. And that is anxiety inducing uh, because we hear stories from our parents about what it was like to live uh, in the 80s, lock in your mortgage at 18 percent, et cetera, et cetera. And Canadians are wondering, uh, you know, how high interest rates are going to go. They were used to, you know, mortgage rates at less than 2 percent for a while. And those, uh, you know, maybe coming due soon and people are looking at renegotiating for five to six percent, you know, best case scenario. So there are many households out there um, who are simply uh, struggling to meet the basic necessities like putting money, uh, putting food on the table, putting gas in the car. And, uh, you know, as I'm reading the article on this uh, on this research and such, what, what seemed to stand out is there wasn't hope in the future. And by that, I mean, it's not like we're going through tough times, but we're all going to make it back in five years from now or two years from now or next year. People have a feeling like it is going to be a long struggle back. Yeah. And and uh, I think this is reflective of, of a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, this this impending recession is a bit of a kick in the teeth, right? We've had two and a half, almost three years now uh, living with COVID. And, uh, you know, in order to avoid a recession, we greatly supported through CERB and other mechanisms, uh, people who lost their jobs during the shutdowns of 2020 and 2021. So we said, okay, you know, we did the right thing. We're avoiding recession. Well, what did it buy us? It bought us high inflation, uh, and now the antidote is a recession. So we're still getting it, you know, anyways. The other thing I'll mention is, you know, when we used to ask people about economic confidence prior to the Great Recession, so this is in the 2000s, um, you know, anywhere between 80 to 85 percent of Canadians would generally say the economy is in good shape. And then the Great Recession hit, and in the early part of the 2010s, the new normal was somewhere between 60 and 65 percent. Now the new normal seems to be somewhere between 45 and 50 percent. Hmm. Canadians are are acknowledging that the you know the the period of of strong growth uh, is 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 over, uh, and and there's a new sort of economic reality here in uh, in Canada. Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. Their latest, uh, obviously, the high pinch of inflation, interest rates, and people are really feeling it, including uh, 22% that say they are completely out of money. Sean, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Bye.
My pleasure. All right. Uh, it's taken three years of a global pandemic, but it appears that the prime minister is now willing to meet with the premiers uh, in regard to health care, despite this being punted down uh, the field several times. I mean, it started in the first wave with uh, former premier B.C. Horgan saying, bringing them all together and, and trying to get uh, some changes, some more money, a change in the template, reform, whatever you want to call it. Now it seems to be happening, oddly enough, uh, just after and I was I was pointing this out in you know in, in the global report yesterday a spokesperson for the British Columbia premier uh, David Eby tells Canadian press the premiers will be in Ottawa February 12th and 13th for a meeting and Trudeau is welcome to join them and heaven uh, behold the next day he has planned his own meeting which is oddly enough the week before uh, but hey as long as we're at least trying to get her done. Uh, I guess it's a step in the right direction. Tim Powers with us, Summa Strategies Chairperson, uh, Managing Director for Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Scott, I'm boycotting Rick in protest of the fact that Trudeau went to him and not you. I'm your man. No more radio with Rick. It's not fair that you're just <laughs> Oh, thank you. My, I, I think you've just pushed me over a cliff right now, Tim. Thank you for that. No, I, we tried hard, man. We wrote it hard. I phoned the hotel a bazillion times, but all I wanted to ask him was why doesn't he see a, a, a business case for Canadian clean liquid natural gas? But anyway. All right. So now the Prime Minister wants to meet with the premiers they've been asking for almost three years during the height of uh, since the height of the global pandemic uh it sounds like they were coming anyway the following week and now he's jumped it up to february 7th why the change of, of mind here why is the prime minister now meeting with the premiers after all this time public opinion uh look at our abacus polls look at angus reed i mean the, the public overwhelmingly now more than perhaps they've ever been in the pandemic they're like something needs to be done and the premiers are hearing it on the front lines too so they're willing to play ball it was very interesting this weekend um blaine higgs the new brunswick premier was being interviewed by uh by roseberry barton he said that point she said why is it happening now it's public opinion well <laughs> that was a wow. admission of the obvious wow um i mean and you're seeing some fascinating things right francois legault the premier Premier of Quebec, who, as you know, doesn't want any, he'll take Ottawa's money, but doesn't want anybody interfering in his jurisdiction, is now saying, well, you know what, I can probably give you some data to look at. Uh, they all need to come together, regardless of date, to appear to be doing something to uh, to ease the pain that Canadians are feeling all across the country. Are the premiers beating the prime minister on this one? And by this, I mean, it seemed he kept punting it down the road. This wasn't even an issue, much like housing for the longest time. It was all climate change and saving the planet. So now uh, it seemed the latest thing was, well, if we're going to get money, we need conditions and reforms as if we'll punt that over to them. That'll take another three months or whatever. And basically, Doug Ford said, yep, no problem. We'll do that thing. Here's the <laughs> and here we go. And the first step was taking, and now it's happening from BC to the Maritimes. So is is JT now playing catch up here? The premiers are moving ahead. Well, I think it depends where you're looking at the game. In the provinces, it's all on the premiers, right? Um, yep. I, I think uh, nationally. Yeah, if you're looking at it from that perspective, it could appear the prime minister is playing catch up and he's playing a bit of the great appeaser role. You, you mentioned Premier Ford and uh, I think the prime minister was asked about, you know, they're trying to bait him on whether he supports private health care. And I think he used the word innovation and he didn't uh, automatically haul out the shield of the Canada Health Act and say, no, this won't happen. Because they know they can't, right? Um, you have entrenched interest, and we talked about this last week, saying you can't change this and you can't change that. But you have average Canadians who waiting for hip surgeries, waiting for knee surgeries, waiting for cataract surgeries, who are saying there's got to be something better than this. So instead of fighting along the old fault lines, let's get something done here. The real concern for me, Scott, yeah, great there'll be a meeting, and great they'll eventually come to a deal probably in March with however X billion of dollars. What happens when the spotlight goes on this? Because this isn't a five-month fix. This isn't yeah, a, yeah. a one-year fix. This is a 10-year job. Like, yeah. is the commitment going to be there? Are we going to be talking, you and I, about this again next year? Probably, because unless there's the will to make major change in investment priorities, labor changes, and all of these things, 
this is uh, this is this is this will be uh, be be a bit of uh, empty rhetoric unless something's really done. I was really surprised after Doug Ford made that announcement because I thought the poo would hit the fan, and I was surprised that everybody, you know, the more people I talk, the the, pe- the people that seem to be upset about it are the people that are benefiting from the old system, whether yeah, it's the unions right? or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, how does the NDP deal with this? Because they're, you know, speaking of old, uh, old lines, they just want to keep keep pouring more money and more money. The problem is with the system is it's gotten it doesn't have enough. It doesn't have enough doctors, nurses. Got to pour more money into it. Where does this leave the relationship between the NDP and the Libs? Well, they'll probably try and find a win around pharmacare and say, look, you want to be innovative. Uh, here's something that can you can work on because as you know they've tried to dine out yeah. on dental care and they're saying I think they want a pharmacare deal done by the end of this year or dental they want some of these deals moved further so that's where they will bring the play they'll keep it on a public health issue where the government can play a major role they'll they'll you know throw a few punches because of the the support base they have around maintaining the basic tenets of public health care as it is now they'll talk about labor shortages and that's a fair point but you know they're kind of a bit in a box here if justin trudeau is opening up and you know the one liberal premier in canada premier fury in in newfoundland and labrador is looking at creative solutions there aren't a lot of major political allies who are saying it's got to be exactly as it was yeah yeah good point thank goodness um here's something completely unrelated let me ask you this question um we, we remember when the liberals were left of center the conservatives were right of center is there pressure on the prime minister to move this party closer to left of center there was before and there may be again i mean i think that's going to depend on i i guess the answer to that we'll see in the budget right um trudeau won well, remember, when he won in 2015, he won by talking about more deficits and more public spending. And he's certainly gone down that track. Uh, and he's, had, he's irritated a number of blue liberals, uh, but the conservatives hadn't been able to capitalize on that. So I don't know where he might go, because the early signs about the budget, and you heard Freeland say some of this, or Randy Boisson, the, the um, associate finance minister, say, you know, we've got enough money for our key programs, but it's going to be tougher and tighter that isn't necessarily a sign that's going to be, or a sound, or a message that's going to be welcome to left of center voters. Tim Powers, Summa Strategies, Managing Director, Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. All right. Take care, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You've no doubt heard about this. And if you've got kids, you may even see it uh, work. <laughs> um, there's artificial intelligence, a chatbot known as Chat G- uh, GPT. And basically, uh, you put in a couple of key words, key elements, and uh, it helps you pass exams or even writes uh, tests or papers for you. To talk more about all of this, Carmi Levy is with us, technology analyst and journalist he is with us now carmy thanks for the time hope you're well hello scott great to be here so uh we've heard a lot about this and you know you gotta think once you start with this where does it end tell us what chat gpt is what is this for those that don't know so chat gpt is a form of a chat bot it's powered by artificial intelligence and basically it's 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 as if you took google search and put it on steroids. It's really the next generation of search, except, except instead of just putting some search terms in and then having it throw back some links to some websites for you, uh, instead you ask it questions in a very conversational way and it answers you in a very conversational way. It doesn't just gives you links, it actually figures out what the answer should be. And so you can have, it almost feels like you're speaking with a human being. You can ask it questions, it'll answer them. And as time goes on, because it is consuming data that it is scraped from the internet, um, it is learning over time. And so those answers get better and better with time. And, you know, it, it is essentially Google sees this. Uh, they have essentially restructured the company in response to this threat. And if we all kind of wonder, well, what happens after search? It's chatbots and chat GPT right now is the best chatbot on the planet. So how are students using this? Well, they're using it in all sorts of ways in some cases. So, for example, it can write something. I can ask it to write me an article on whatever and it will generate copy for me. And so you can imagine what that's like if a student gets a syllabus or an exam or, you know, an assignment for a paper and then basically goes on to chat GPT and says, hey, do this for me. And it spits back copy that 
more or less looks like a human being wrote it. And, you know, it, and, and I've played with it. I've, I've just attested to sort of see I'm a writer, of course, you know, during my day job. And so, you know, when I look at this, I go, hmm, could it write as well as me? And so I've taken some of the things that I work on and just on a test basis, thrown them in there and it gives me copy back. Is it good copy? Is it English that I can understand? Yes. Uh, is it the best that you can imagine? Probably not. We're seeing some results now where professors and researchers have given it MBA exams, bar school exams. Uh, and in some cases, in the MBA exam, for example, example, it actually got a B between a B and a B minus. It passed the exam. Was it mm. perfect? No. Was it, were there some areas of weakness? Absolutely. Could you kind of tell that it was a computer that was, that, that was answering? Yes. But as time goes on, it becomes more and more human. And in many cases, if you're a student, why bother studying when you can just plug it into the chatbot and get the answer directly? Let the technology do it for you. So are students even bothering bothering to rewrite these, take this, you know, B minus whatever and trying to bring it to an A? Or are they just rubber stamp, stamping it and that's the assignment? Well, the dumb students aren't bothering to re to redo anything because the because there are in fact you know as you can imagine this exciting new technology comes out there's now this whole burgeoning ecosystem developers are coming up with all sorts of software to kind of complement it and one of them is a chatbot that detects whether something was written by a chatbot so of course you can imagine if you're a teacher that would be amazing to have my hmm. my students submitted this this paper. Have a look at it and let me know if it, if, if in fact it was a chatbot, uh, that created it. Uh, and so you can find cheats. If you're a, a prof, you know, there's a very popular service called Turnitin, which has been used to detect plagiarism for decades. Uh, and in fact, Turnitin just, uh, just last week announced that they would be incorporating technology that would be able to tell whether a chatbot had written something. So, you know, if, if you're a smart student, You'll probably use it as a tool, but, you know, just to help your research in much the same way that we all use online tools now as part of the process. But ultimately, we end up writing our own stuff. That's kind of where we're headed with chatbots, too, is that you're not going to have it do it for you. It'll just be yet another one of those tools that you put into your toolkit. But you certainly wouldn't want to be accused of plagiarism. You certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to be accused of cutting and pasting off of a chatbot either. Wow, we've certainly come a long way since the stack of Encyclopedia Britannicas that used to be at our place, man. Holy smokes. Um, is this a game of cat and mouse? I mean, one develops, the other one tries to play catch up. It kind of is. And, and, you know, it's interesting to see like different school systems have come up with different strategies to deal with, with tools like ChatGPT. The New York City public school system, primary, middle and high school, uh, they have banned it outright. Some schools in Seattle also. Uh, have banned it outright. But the higher you go in the education system, as you get toward college and university, well, freedom of expression, academic freedom, that's a lot more important at that level. And so schools there, they're not banning it. They're thinking, hey, maybe this is an opportunity for us to rewrite the way that we that we actually teach. So, you know, maybe the old ways hmm. of you know memorizing and then regurgitating on an exam uh, and, and marking by rote, maybe that's not the way we should go. And so, you know, yes, to, there is, to a certain degree, you'll have students who say, hey, this can get me through school and I'm going to use it. You'll have institutions figuring out how to stop it. But really, this starts a conversation about how do we incorporate these tools? How do we use them in class? How do we uh, use a, a chatbot, for example, have the students ask the chatbot questions and then discuss it in class. So mm. don't just put your head in the sand, pretend it doesn't exist. Incorporate it in and see if you can come up with new ways to learn. And then you can leave the whole cat and mouse game behind. Yeah, because really, at the end of the day, it was always about memorization anyway, and they're just regurgitating it back on a test or whatever. So is this that yeah. much different, many will say. All right, we want to get to the Google story. Uh, they're getting in trouble with the U.S., uh, many saying it's a monopoly. What's this story about? What kind of trouble is Google in? Department of Justice is, uh, is going after Google, basically saying that they behave in a way that stifles competition, that increases prices for consumers, gives you and me a lot less choice. This follows, like every couple of years, there's, there's a new lawsuit, a new effort by legislators, both in the U.S. as well as in Europe. European Union has also been going after Google for monopoly and antitrust issues. Uh, and they always end up the same way. Uh, you know, they, they, uh, they, Google gets fined in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars, in other cases billions of dollars. Uh, there is another lawsuit, uh, and uh, a competition lawsuit that the DOJ had launched a couple of years ago that's still pending. Uh, but the problem here is, is that Google writes a check and then goes back to basically doing what it had mm. always done 
in the past, which doesn't really change anything. What's different about this one is that the Department of Justice is basically saying, we're not just going to be looking for fines. In other words, don't, don't just try to check this time. They may, they're threatening to break up the company if, in fact, they do win this case. So we're definitely watching this one. Hopefully, at some point, something sticks because truth of the matter is, Google is the 800-pound gorilla in online advertising, and it is a market that could use some more competition. This is the case that might finally break that lockdown. Carmen Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, talking about everything from artificial intelligence to uh, a monopoly behind Google. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it, Scott. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we were talking the, the other day in regard to German tanks, uh, of which there's lots of them spread around Europe, and getting those into Ukraine. Obviously, Germany was hesitant about that uh, and now has been pressured into allowing countries to send those and such. Uh, now, President U.S. President Biden has announced uh, earlier today the U.S. is also sending tanks to Ukraine. To talk more about all of this, Brian J. Karam is with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat, host of Just Ask the Question podcast, and author of the book, uh, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, how are you today? Doing good. How about yourself? Good. So far, we're getting lots of snow up here. But other than that, um, so I want to ask you something completely off topic here. And, and I don't mean sure. to be disres- I don't mean to be disrespectful or pick on anybody. But I'm watching the news conference today with President uh, Biden. And man, there's times when he just looks like he's drifting into a nap that he's just kind of lost it uh, and then <laughs> desperately tries to get back to, you know, whatever's written in front of them. How is he doing? Is he OK? Is he on top of his game? Yeah, I find him to be. Uh, I, I, look. He, he's eighty years old. I'm sure he gets yeah. tired, <laughs> and he would get real tired of dealing with us because we ask some of the stupidest questions I've ever heard a you know a White House press corps ask. But um, he's been, uh, it, it, you know, he is. I think still, you know, with us. I don't think he's got problems as far as mental decline. I think he just gets tired easy. Yeah. All right. Let's move on and talk about, uh, obviously, Ukraine and such. The president uh, holding a news conference today. There was pressure on Germany to release their tanks into uh, uh, into Russia or for or for not into Russia, but for use uh, in uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we heard it was different with the U.S. because these tanks are a bit more complicated. And also, you got to send them across the pond as opposed to uh, have them, uh, you know, throughout Europe and such. So uh, give us a bit more detail on what the U.S. is going to send. 31 tanks. These are um, a, a battalion of tanks, actually. And Biden made some uh, reference to today about uh, the training that's going to take. So it won't be, you know, for a month or two before they actually get on the battlefield. He wanted to wait until Germany had um, committed, he said, um, uh, before we committed. It was part of a joint effort. Uh, these are uh, Abrams tanks, I believe. And they were, uh, <laughs> you know, the the. The U.S. military probably doesn't mind getting rid of them, but that's another story. Hmm. Uh, the, the real story, I guess, is going to be uh, the training that it takes and does this. Um, and I think the real fear is, does this mean an escalation of 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 violence or escalation of our involvement in Ukraine? Uh, I'm sure you saw the news that uh, scientists have put the doomsday clock closer yeah. to midnight than it's ever been because of the Ukraine war. And uh, Putin's threat to use uh, nuclear deterrence uh, should it escalate further. So it's a big it's it's not just giving the tanks. It's everything that goes around it that the U.S. has to be wary of. Uh, obviously, that was Germany's concern that this could escalate the war. Uh, many challenged Germany for that. Obviously, now the U.S. is responding as well. What about Russia's response? Because they said this uh, this will escalate the war. How are they going to react to this announcement, both from Germany and the U.S.? I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I do know that talking to uh, to our NSC um, people and on background, I was told that uh, the metrics were done, the math was figured, and they don't think this will escalate things, and they don't think it increases the danger of further escalation. Now, what they base that on, I can't tell you. I can only tell you that they think that they uh, have made the necessary calculations. And if they're right, then that tells you that there's a backdoor to Russia and that, there's, that we're speaking to Russia and that maybe Russia isn't as 
um, as definitive, or at least that the leadership isn't as definitive in defending Putin as we are led to believe. Uh, is this a turning point in any way by offering this equipment? I mean, because we've been offering lots. Is this does this change the game in any way? That's the that's the you know, that's the penultimate question there. And that's the you know, we've given a Patriot missile battery and they're training and uh, Ukrainians are training in Germany for that. We've given uh, missiles. We've given launchers. We've given anti-tank missiles. We've been given ammunition uh, and weaponry. And that's it. What is the turning point? No one knows. I don't think anyone can figure what is going on with Putin. But apparently we have people close enough to him that we've figured it out or think we have. I think it's a very precarious position. I think it's very dangerous. And I don't think anyone knows for sure. Americans supporting all this. Well, so far, um, you know, it's as split as as always in the United States. There are those who can't stand Biden and think that he's overstepped and that. And then there are those who support Biden who think this is right on with what we should do. But I have to tell you, having been to Ukraine myself and having spent some time there, these people are determined to defend their their country as as we all would be. I mean, you know, I've often said, call me when they get to San Francisco. But, you know, the the simple fact of the matter is, is with with um, Ukraine being as resolved as they are in in maintaining their independence, I don't know that um, that. Any other decision could have been made. And I think that so far, Biden has played this very well because there hasn't been a massive escalation of violence. And there is every indication that um, that the Russians are growing weary of this um, of this war. So we'll see where it leads. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, uh, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. Brian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, my brothers. Talk to you soon and stay out of the snow. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Um, you know, we were uh, booking the segment to talk about uh, the rise that we've seen in, in you know, just terrible stories involving youth and such and violence, whether it's uh, attacking homeless people, what's been happening on transit, the transit system in, in Toronto and such. And, and lo and behold, before we even get a chance to do that, we're hearing reports that yet there's been another attack on the TTC is stabbing uh, earlier on this afternoon. So um, where is this going and, and, and why does this seem to be um, happening now uh, of all times post-pandemic and such? Is that the reasoning behind all this? Let's bring in Vula uh, Mar- uh, Marinos, child or professor, child and youth studies director, forensic psychology and criminal justice and is with us now. Vula, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. So what are your thoughts here, Vul? I mean, obviously, there's lots of chatter about these youth crimes, teen crimes that have seemingly been increasing in the last little bit, specifically around transit. We also know the story of the the homeless person and such in Toronto. What are your thoughts when you hear these stories? Well, my thoughts are uh, probably consistent with most members of the public, which is that it's really quite concerning. And um, it is... uh, not great to be hearing about this random victimization that that is occurring and these are young people often quite young people in fact and um we really haven't uh for quite some time heard about a series of of victimizations like this um within a short period of time so uh, my reaction is is quite similar to uh to most listeners of course how do we explain it can we explain it well i mean we would need to look at every um situation of course um we can't paint these explanations um with a broad brush um However, we do know that uh, socially, economically, politically, um, we've gone through and undergone some major changes. Um, And while the pandemic um, has certainly gotten under control, um, the social and economic changes, of course, 
um, continue to have an impact on on people's behavior, particularly those who are the most vulnerable and and marginalized. And, um, you know, today, for example, the Bank of Canada and the interest rate, right? I mean, this is going to have an impact on families um, and and young people, young people's young people have families. And so um, there's there's a lot going on, I think. Um, a Toronto Transit official said, you know, at one time you could say these were isolated incidents. Uh, and he said they're becoming far too common to be isolated anymore. Is this a trend? Is it a fad? Is it, you know, this is the, uh, the, the I don't know, the only word I can think of is this is the new hip way to express oneself. Why does this seem to be trending now? Well, I mean, you know, d- despite, um, what I've said so far, I do think that it's important that we place these incidents within a context. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know that overall, the youth crime rate um, has dropped um, and has been, you know, trending downwards over the last uh, two decades. Um, now, youth violence, and these are police reported um incidents. Uh, Violence has increased uh, by about 6% um, between 2020 and 2021. Uh, And while violence has increased for young people, what is interesting is that the severity of those violent incidents have decreased. So the volume is going up, Hmm. but the severity is actually... um, um, you know, decreasing. Now that doesn't make us necessarily feel much better when you are the victim of a random attack. And, um, obviously people are more afraid, um, because these situations are happening, uh, randomly. But if we look at the statistics, um, we do need to place these, uh, reports of victimizations uh, within within that context. So we are seeing, I think, assaults going up um, and we are seeing the use of firearms, in fact, among young people um, going up. But that is only within a one-year time period that I have statistics for. It appears we're in a pretty divisive world right now. There's a lot of angry people out there. There's a lot of people that are upset with what's going on and, and, and just where we are uh, in the world. Do you think this is just a blip that, you know, like anything, we'll get through this? It'll cycle around? I do. I do think that it is a blip. Now, how long that blip lasts for, um, you know, I mean, I think it. if I could predict it, if I had a magic... Uh, you know, a, a crystal ball here. Um, I would say that we're, we still have a, f- a few years to go. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that um, what COVID did was to um, amplify the gaps that mm. already existed, right? The economic gaps, the, um, uh, the healthcare gaps, um, you know, gaps in services and programs. And, um, and you know, today is Let's Talk um, Mental Health Day, right? And um, it's, it, we definitely know that people have suffered and we're seeing the, the impacts, um, you know, through, through a lot of these uh, violent situations. So we've only got about 30 seconds left. Can you, any advice here, Vula? Like we just, it seems we need to stay, take a step back and take a deep breath. We got to cool down. Any advice for us? I think the advice that I would give is still, um, we need to keep it in, in perspective um, that overall, um, you know, Toronto, Ontario is a safe place to be and a safe, safe place to live. Um, but it's, it's certainly uh, concerning but we need to keep these things in, in perspective. Vula Marino is with us, Professor Child and Youth Studies Director, Forensic Psychology and Criminal Justice. Vula, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Thanks so much. 
All right, as you know, the Prime Minister and Cabinet uh, finishing up their uh, retreat in Hamilton and heading back. Let's bring in MP Philomena Tassi, who, of course, uh, was a big part of uh, of the event, especially around Lock Street and giving the Prime Minister a tour around there. Philomena Tassi, Member of Parliament for Hamilton West, Ancaster, Dundas, and the Minister responsible for the Federal Economic Development Agency for Southern Ontario, and is with us now. Philomena, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Great to be with you this afternoon. So your thoughts on the Hamilton retreat now that it's winding up or wound up? Uh, what what have we learned or what did you learn from this experience coming to the Hammer? Well, first and foremost, it was absolutely fantastic to be able to welcome the Prime Minister and my cabinet colleagues to our ambitious city. And, um, you know, it's uh, we know that as cabinet ministers, we have uh, a lot of work ahead of us. So it was great. To, uh, to be able to do that work here, roll up our sleeves and get to work, uh, but also have the opportunity for the Prime Minister and Ministers to, you know, have engagements throughout the city, which did occur. Um, but listen, fantastic for Hamilton that we, uh, that we were all here uh, working very hard as we look forward to paving the way uh, for our future. Uh, obviously, great focus on Hamilton with all of this. It seemed like the uh, the epicenter of the country was was in Hamilton there for a couple of days. The focus, the universe, as they say. Um, and and we heard the prime minister talking earlier on uh, in the news about some protests and demonstrations and such. Um, and I want to put this as delicately as I can. But is the prime minister aware of just how? Uh, and he he said that this was you know not going to let a, a, you know a few or a, a couple of angry uh, people uh, obviously define Hamilton or what democracy is, but are you aware of just how upset, concerned, uh, anxious, stressed out Canadians are right now about where we are? Is the Prime Minister? So, absolutely, Scott. Like, look, first and foremost, in terms of protests, um, we, we, the government, uh, believe that people have the right to protest peacefully. And the one thing the Prime Minister asks us, all of us in caucus, is the importance of connecting with Canadians and having that engagement. And I can tell you, like, I'm making calls to my uh, constituents now just to touch base and, you know, see how they're doing. And people are very worried about, you know, the cost of living, health care. And these are some of the priorities that that we discussed uh, over the past three days. And so, we are absolutely aware. This is a very challenging time. And it's important that as we pave the way forward, that we are building an economy that works for everyone and providing Canadians with hope. And uh, so, you know, we had great discussions over the past three days. But uh, in answer to your question, we absolutely are aware. And we take our work very seriously. And we want to ensure that as we move forward, we are including everyone and, uh, and providing hope and supports to Canadians, which I think that we have done well as a government uh, since 2015. Uh, do you think that you, uh, your party, is in line with what we're seeing from surveys and pollings of Canadians right the way across the country of what their priorities are, uh, which is obviously concerns around the economy, of course, health care, inflation, housing, mostly affordable affordability issues. Is the party in line with that? In line with that. So, listen, absolutely. Like, when we have our discussions, we're discussing things that are important to Canadians. The priorities that we, as a government, are looking at are the things that are top of mind for Canadians, which is why it's not only the Cabinet discussions, but it's also the caucus discussions where MPs are coming from across the country to say, look, this is what's on our uh, constituents' minds. And I can tell you that, you know, the cost of living is front and centre in that. And, And, you know, it's the reason why we, as a government, have put in place so many measures in order to address the the cost of living issues. So you look at things like affordable child care, the Canada Child Benefit. The Canada Child Benefit has lifted over 400,000 children in this country out of poverty. The OAS and the GIS increase. And then in addition, most recently, for those seniors that are 75 and over, a 10% increase to their OAS. The rental benefit, the dental benefit, one of our most recent um, initiatives, the workers benefit. All these measures are really targeting Canadians that need it most and providing supports that are also going to not only enable them to get by, but also provide a policy and supports that are going to help 
workers to be able to get into the workforce. So that would be the child care benefit and the um, uh, and the child care mm-hmm. cost getting to the, the ten dollar a day. So all these measures, Scott, are are really about ensuring that we are providing the supports for Canadians. But at the same time, there's another piece to this is in Canada, we think we are well positioned. We have so many opportunities to make critical investments that will ultimately relate to good paying jobs, the creation of good paying jobs, and looking to the future to ensure that we are looking for future growth. So one of the ones that I'm, I, I talk about repeatedly, because I think it's just so important, is the ArcelorMittal DeFasco, uh, $400 million that the federal government has uh, contributed um, and that was mostly loan in order for them to produce green steel. You know, my father worked at DeFasco, and I worked at DeFasco as a, as a summer student. With Arsene Middle DeFasco taking on this, this is going to allow my great-grandchildren to be able to have a job at Arsene Middle DeFasco because they mm. are going to be here for a long time because they're at the forefront of green steel, which is what I think the world is this is where we're going. So these sorts of investments, and now in my position as uh, Minister Responsible for the Federal Economic Development Agency of Southern Ontario, I can tell you that investments are extremely important because we want to, we want to, and it's not us creating the jobs, it's Canadians that are creating the jobs. So let's be clear, we are investing in the talents that Canadians have so that they can then, uh, you know, create jobs, grow, and that starts from small businesses, Rate to businesses like Arsenal Middle the Pascal that are larger. Um, I know you're not the health minister and it's not your portfolio, but obviously lots of chatter around health care of late. The premiers have been trying to meet with the uh, prime minister for quite a long time now. Uh, today, he's agreed that February 7th, there will be a meeting. How come the change of mind? What can we expect from that? Why the change of, of heart here? So I wouldn't say this is a change of heart. Like what this is about is, uh, first of all, let me say that the Prime Minister has had more uh, First Ministers meetings than any other Prime Minister in our history. Except now, on health care, Philomena. Except on health care. Well, I, I don't know. I take exception to that. When you look at uh, $72 billion that was given to provinces and territories throughout COVID, that was as a result of the including health care, because it was vaccines, it was... No, vaccines, but we're talking about changing the template. We're talking about okay, changing so the template and, and yes, the work that needs yes. to be done. Yes, absolutely. So so let me say that the Minister of Health has been meeting with his partners in the provinces and territories to have these discussions. And now I think through those discussions, we are at a place where the Prime Minister says, okay, let's now gather, and so on February 7th, that's going to happen. And um, we know the importance of health care for Canadians. And uh, we want every Canadian to have access to health care in a timely and efficient manner. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's fantastic that we have these priorities now that we are setting, like talking about modernizing health data, you know, ensuring mental health supports are provided, ensuring there's enough doctors. Uh, ultimately, this is about delivering effective and efficient health care. And the federal government is going to be there with funding, but we just want to make sure that we are all on the same page with respect to the accountability piece and ensuring that the dollars, which are taxpayers' dollars that we are giving, are actually going to reap the best results. And so this is about, you know, uh, recognizing one size doesn't necessarily fit all, um, but there has to be some prioritization with respect to some of these key elements that both the Minister of Health and the Prime Minister have articulated. So um, I'm happy that this is taking place. The Minister of Health has recently talked about the progress that has been made. I think that you have heard that most recently. Mm-hmm. And so this is great that on the, on the 7th, they're going to get together and uh, hopefully iron out the details um, so that we can ensure that, you know, there's going to be efficient and effective health care delivered across this country. So important to Canadians. And that's another area of where the stress and anxiety is coming, right? Like if you think you you have parents that their children are getting sick and they're thinking, oh, my God, what if I can't get the, the care I need? What if I can't take them to the hospital? What if I... So, you know, this is just so vitally important, and it's great that, uh, that this meeting will happen, and hopefully, you know, um, the collaboration will be there in order for, for us to come to uh, to agreement. Philomena Tassi with us, Member of Parliament for Hamilton West, and Castor Dundas, Minister Responsible for the Federal Economic Development Agency for Southern Ontario. Philomena Tassi, thank you so much for the time. Be well.
Thank you, Scott. You as well. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Frank wrote in to say, you might have an opportunity for an interview with Justin tomorrow, Scott. He might be snowed in like the rest of Paul writes in to say, are people stupid when it snows? Yes, just drove home to Hamilton from 401 Highway 10. 50% of the cars without headlights turned on and most with just windows cleared of snow. I saw a woman stopped at the bottom of the Queen Street Hill slash Beckett Drive in a live lane. She decided there that she needed to clean the rest of her SUV after a dump slid off the roof onto her windshield. 